Alright guys, if you have your Bible, I hope you do, turn to Revelation chapter 4. We'll be covering that whole chapter right now. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back window there. I'd be happy for you to use one of those. Have you ever guys have you guys ever seen like videos of magicians or people like playing tricks on people and one thing they'll do is they'll um say i'm going to transfer this thing from this hand to this hand and they like mess with the person's hands and all the while they have them looking at these objects in their hand but they will like slap their hand or their wrist and all of a sudden their watch is gone they're like here's your watch you guys ever seen something like that and what they're doing is diverting their attention away from the watch by focusing on this little trick and and it's pretty funny because some of these watches they take are like massive watches sometimes they're like how did you do that and it's real simple if you're just actually paying attention to what the guy's doing actually versus what he's getting him to focus on, uh, it's, it's quite interesting seeing that. But I don't know if you guys have seen that before, but you know, maybe someone does it to you, you're ready for someone to steal your watch. Be ready. Uh, but we've seen those kind of tricks, right? And sometimes in our culture, we see very similar. You might be wondering, where are you going with this? Well, in our culture, we see a lot of books that are sell, sold out there to that, that are talking about heaven, right? And they're talking about people's experiences in heaven. Right, so you have that little boy who he they made a movie about him in his book, a bestseller, Heaven Is for Real. You guys heard of that? Heard of that book? Heard of that movie? Yeah, and that's one of those like books that's really, and I would say, distracting from what actually the Bible says about heaven. Another one, Don Piper, Ninety Minutes in Heaven. He gets in a car accident, and he um, is dead for an, or declared dead in, for about an hour and 45 minutes. And then he comes back to life and says, oh, the whole time I was in heaven. And he write these books about it. Uh, even famous prosperity gospel preachers like Jesse Duplantis said that he was in his hotel room. And all of a sudden he had a vision and he was taken in a carousel, or not carousel, a cable car, to heaven through the universe. And an angel with blonde hair was waiting on there for him. He says, you have a meeting with Jehovah, right? And he goes into heaven and he meets Jehovah. And all these things, my point is, just like the illustration about the watch being stolen in the the illusion, or delusion here, is they're trying to, I think what they, they might be well-intended people. So they're not even getting their attention. Some of them are not. But some of them might be well-intended people. But all the while, they're putting so much of their focus on their experience, rather than what the Bible says about Scripture, about heaven. And as we dive into the book of Revelation... Especially in this section, we're diving, we're really walking into the door of heaven here. I mean, this is what the text says. If you look at the very first one, after this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And he's invited up into heaven. And so we're going to see in the book of Revelation what heaven looks like, what heaven is. You know, um, actually, you know, we well, often when we think about the book of Revelation, what do you think about? You think about judgment? You think about Jesus coming? What else do you think about? The book of Revelation. The plagues, different plagues. Visions. Visions, yeah, visions, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's different things like that. Then you get the churches. Well, you know, most of what takes place is actually in heaven, um, in, in the book of Revelation. So, for instance, starting from Revelation 4 all the way to 22. It's mostly in heaven. It's talking about things that were happening on earth, but it's all coming from heaven, coming from the throne of God. And we're going to see that unfold in this text. So if, I know we're in Revelation 4, but just keep your hand there and go back to Revelation 1. And it, this is helping you understand the structure of the book. And I like to point this out so you have an idea of what the book is doing. 
Revelation 1, 19. Look at the text. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. That is a key statement to understand the whole book of Revelation, okay? To interpret the book correctly. So notice, let me break it down. He says, write therefore the things you have seen. Well, what's the context? He had just seen the vision of the Son of Man. So he's saying, write that down. And he writes it down. That's the vision. So that's chapter 1. So 19a, write therefore the things you have seen. That's talking about chapter 1. Then he says, those that are, that's in reference to chapters 2 and 3. In other words, the current state of the seven churches. Remember Jesus, every single one, what was the phrase he had said in the beginning of each church? I know your works. works. Right. And so that second part has to do, when he says those that are, that's what chapters 2 and 3. And then the rest of the book is the latter half of that phrase, and and those that are to take place after this. And so notice that phrase even, after this. And how does 4.1 open up? After this. A really clear connection. It's in the Greek as well, but also in the English to see that transition in the book. There's this transition. He's done talking to the seven churches. He's done with that. And now um, we are moving into heaven. So chapters 4 and 5, by the way, are an introduction and background information concerning the rest of the book. Okay? So it's, 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 I didn't want to preach them both in one just because it is a lot of text to cover, and there's a lot of stuff here, so we're going to take our time. But really, 4 and 5 really go together. And... Um, What's happening is it's setting up the judgments that are about to take place. So this chapter also is going to help us interpret the book as we look forward. We may often refer back to chapter 4 and refer back to chapter 5 as we're in 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, and so on. So this is really important to grasp, this chapter and the next one. So if you haven't been taking notes, let me encourage you. Grab that pen, grab that paper, and let's dive in. I believe the main idea of this passage, if I were to sum up with the author's original intent, is this. That the vision of God's throne reveals that God is worthy of worship as he sits in judgment over his creation. Okay, The vision of God's throne reveals that God is worthy of worship as he sits in judgment over his creation. So, looking at our text, I'll go ahead and read for us verse 1. Okay, And this is an invitation to heaven. Point number 1, verse 1, an invitation to heaven. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So I've already pointed this out, this transition from 119, the very end, to there. There's this transition that's really clear. But he says, I looked. And not only did he look, but now he's telling us to look in a way. He says, and behold, check it out, look closely. A door standing open open in heaven. Now, where have we already seen a door in, in this, this imagery of a door in Revelation already? Where at? Yeah, what does it say? Do you remember? Yeah, I see stand at, I stand at the door and what? That's right. He says, I stand at the door and knock. And this is now Jesus coming to the church there and saying, you know, I want in. I want to have fellowship. Where else do we see a door in earlier in the book? You guys remember what other church? The church of Philadelphia, right? And he says, I have the keys of David. So in other words, keys open doors, right? So we see the imagery of a door there as well. And he says about in that church, he says, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So God has the power to open doors, okay? And now you might be thinking, what are these doors talking about? We talked about it before Philadelphia. You can go back and listen to that. But in this case, the door here is a door standing open. John is not sitting here. The vision happens and he sees, and this door opens. 
It's a door already open. It's a door ready for, to receive John, ready to welcome him. And now, here, here, hear me out. Look at this text. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of things that are said here. Notice what it says. This door is open in heaven, and I want to talk about this. Heaven. What is heaven? You know, sometimes when you're reading, like, Genesis, if you've been following along in Sunday school and we talk about heaven, you know, it talks about these uh, heaven being like the sky, like the heavens, okay? And that's true, but there's three different levels of heaven, okay, in the Bible, okay? And meaning this, when they use the word heaven, it can also be synonymous for the word sky. So when we talk about our atmosphere, that's like heaven level number one. Now, we're not talking about a spiritual thing. We're talking about physical, right? It's something you can see. So sometimes the Bible say, the Bible also says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's not talking about heaven where God dwells. What's that talking about? Talking about space and stars, right? So the stars we can see at night. So that's talking about the second level of heaven, okay? At least how the Bible describes it. But those are both natural, okay? Those are both natural words for heaven used in the Bible. But the third level of heaven, okay, or of heavens, is the supernatural, which you see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're not going to read it all now, but John, or Paul the Apostle says, I was taken up to the third heaven. He had a vision, and he was taken up to heaven. And so that is speaking of a supernatural place, and it doesn't have to do with the natural place. So now that's heaven, real briefly. It's the place where God dwells. It's a supernatural place. Now, next, though, is this phrase, and the first voice. Now, what's he talking about? He, he, he hears, he had heard a voice, and he's referring back to that voice. Where did he hear this voice? Jesus. Good job, Bailey. That's right. Jesus, back in chapter 1, verse 10, when he said, I heard a voice, and this voice was the Son of Man. And this is what the voice says to him. He says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, those of you who are familiar with the doctrine of the rapture, what's the rapture? What's the rapture? Okay, that's a good way to put it, yeah. The, the rapture is um, being called up or caught up, okay? Some people don't believe in the rapture. I think this is something that we would say is um, a more secondary issue of doctrine. Is, you know, if you say you don't believe in the rapture, that doesn't mean you're going to hell, okay? Um, it's not a primary doctrine like the Trinity or um, substitutionary atonement or the full deity and humanity of Christ. Like those things, if you, don't, if you deny those things, you're not a Christian. But denying the rapture is not one of those things. Now, um, some people disagree about that. Uh, so, for instance, I'm someone who holds to, if you remember when we talked about this, like, in September, okay? I hold to what's called a pre-tribulational rapture. We're about to dive into what the tribulation is in the rest of this book, a seven-year tribulation, okay? I believe that the rapture happens before the tribulation, okay? That means the church does not go through it. I have some reasons why, and one of them I'll just go ahead and state for you later in my notes. But one reason why is because the church is not even mentioned at all from Revelation 4 until 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Only Israel. Why is that? Because judgment for them is not part of God's plan on the earth. Now, it does talk about saints, but we'll, we'll talk about that, what that means in this context when it comes up. But I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Some believe in a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation. So three and a half years in, God's going to rapture his people. Or at the very end, when Christ returns, Christ will rapture, bring up his people, but they'll also be coming down with him immediately after he calls them. And that rapture is not Jesus coming down to earth. Some people get this a little mixed up. It's not Jesus coming down and saying, all right, everyone, let's go. It's a trumpet call. It's a call up to heaven, okay? Like, a, like a, the voice like a trumpet, okay? So... That is a brief synopsis of the rapture. I could say a lot more, but that's not what the text is about today. So, um, Walford, one commentator um, I, I, I use, 
he talks about this word and come up here. It's the same one used for the rapture, like I said, but this is not John being raptured. We want to be really clear to say that here. It's, it's, an, it's not an invitation to come to heaven and be there forever, because his body's still on the island of Patmos, and you actually see that throughout the text. Rather, it's an invitation to revelation. Maybe you want to write that down. This is an invitation to revelation. In other words, God is saying, come up here, I want to show you something. Come up here, you need to see this, because this is what's going to take place after this. Remember, that's our phrase, after this. I will show you. What must take place after this? That's what he says. Walverd says about the rapture, um, the rapture as a doctrine is not part of the prophetic foreview of the book of Revelation. That's why I won't cover it too much, to be honest. I gave you a little bit, but it's not, the, it's not even mentioned in the book, really. This is in keeping with the fact that the book of the whole is not occupied primarily with God's program for the church. Instead, the primary objective is to portray the events leading up to and climaxing in the second coming of Christ and the prophetic kingdom of the eternal state that will ultimately will follow. So, it's not until Revelation twenty two sixteen that you see the word church again. So now let's go to the next two verses, which uh, this is our next point, uh, verses 2 and 3, which has to do with God's throne. Now remember, like I said, John is still in Patmos, but he's experiencing these things through visions. Now, you might notice, and this is what I did in my Bible, maybe you want to do this as well. When I saw the word throne, I just drew a square around it, like just squared out the word, okay? You want to know why? Because in our passage today alone, in 11 verses, the word throne pops up 14 times. That's a lot to see the word throne. You know, in the New Testament as a whole, the word throne pops up 60 times. And we're seeing 14 in these 11 verses. Well, in the rest of the book of Revelation, if we add those 11 verses total, 47 times the word throne is used. So that means only 13 other times the word throne is used in the other 26 books of the New Testament. So that's going to tell you guys something right now. This book is about God ruling and reigning from his throne. It really is. That's a big part of it. It's not all of what Revelation's about, but it's a major, we might say, motif or theme throughout the book of Revelation. And so you're going to see it right here. Let's look at verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And so really what we see here is a throne. In the ancient world, it symbolized authority. It still symbolized authority as well, but um, it was like a royal authority. But even in the Bible, it goes beyond that. It does say that sense of royal authority. But it goes beyond that to communicate God's majesty, his transcendence. Remember the passage we read, Isaiah chapter 6? The train of his robe filled the temple, and he was seated on the throne, and these angels were going around singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. His throne, it represents God's power. It represents God's righteousness. Even if we look at a few different passages, uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66 in your Bibles. And this is what it says. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? God's throne is in heaven. We see that clearly in Revelation. It's, it's true in the Old Testament and in the New. In Ezekiel, just a couple books over, three more books over. Ezekiel 43 verse 7, he says, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. Where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by their, the dead bodies of their kings at their high places. 
So what's really important you're going to see actually in the book of Revelation is as God is on his throne, he's not in a palace, right? Normally when you think of a throne, you think of a palace, right? You think of a king or queen sitting on the throne in the palace. Maybe if you're a Narnia fan, you think of Caer Paravel, right? And this wonderful castle that the Peter and Edmund and Lucy and Susan all ruled from, right? Or you might think of King Arthur and his knights of the round table and he might have had a throne or something like that, right? So they're in a palace or a castle. But God's temple is where he resides and he rules and reigns from. God's temple is where his throne is because that's where his presence is. It's very different from what we might typically think or see when we think about a king ruling and reigning. So a couple other passages, I won't go there, but um, Ezekiel chapter 1, actually that whole chapter is going to relay a lot of what we actually see in Revelation as well and, and corresponding to it. But let's keep going. So he says, he was in the spirit and he tells us to pay attention. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now he's going to go on to describe who this one is. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So these are precious stones. And maybe if you know a little bit of your Old Testament, the high priests, you know what they wore? They wore a beautiful robe. And on that robe, in the very center, they had 12 precious stones. Do you guys know what those 12 stones represented? The 12 tribes. That's right. The 12 tribes of Israel. And in representing those 12 tribes, this is one of those, another one of those small ways in which I think, hey, Revelation 4 to you know, 19, this is about Israel. And it's God's plan for the church as well, but for Israel. We see this here even in the appearance of the one who sat there, Jasper and Carnelian. Jasper represented the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Reuben. And Carnelian represented the tribe of Benjamin on the high priestly vestments. Now, uh, we have a Benjamin in here. He's back over there. Benjamin, his name, he, let's see if he gets it this time. What's your name mean? Son of my right hand. Son of my right hand. That's what his name means. He didn't get it on Sunday night. I totally forgot. Um, but that's okay. Hey, I but, so close, though, so close. You did great this time. You nailed it. Um, but hey, that's what Benjamin means, right? Son of my right hand. Now, Reuben, do you anyone know what Reuben means? What's that? No. That's a, that's a good try. Good try. Son of my left hand. Nope, nope, not that one. No, Reuben, it actually just means behold, a son. Look, a son. I got a son, right? That's essentially what happened. Um, so, Reuben means behold a son, Benjamin, son of my right hand. Reuben is Jasper, Benjamin is Carnelian. And essentially here, I think there's a double meaning happening here. We're point, it's pointing to Israel, okay? And I think what's happening is there's actually even a summary of all 12 tribes, starting with the first one and the last one. Remember Jesus says, I am the first and the last. We see that kind of theme happening in, often in this book. But um, we see here with this um, a double meaning, and this is what I mean by that. Jesus is the son of God. He's the only begotten Son of God. And at the same time, he is at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Jesus rules and reigns. And so I think there's, a, there's a, some communication happening here about the Son because that, the Jasper and Carnelian is describing, listen, the appearance of Christ, the appearance of God, one who sat there with, like Jasper and Carnelian around the throne, as it also says. So we see a throne, someone on the throne, and now we're looking around the throne. How is it described around the throne. Well, really clearly, it says a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What does the rainbow represent? What does the rainbow represent? God's promise, right? We just studied Noah in Sunday school, right? 
It represents God's promise, His covenant with His people. It says He put His bow in the cloud to promise everyone He will never flood the entire earth again. And so, notice, even around the base of the throne of God is a reminder of His promise of salvation and of renewal, of making all things new. That's His promise. And even the bow, the rainbow, it reminds us of God's promise. It's a beautiful picture, really, when you think about it and you meditate on that truth. Uh, John MacArthur, he sees uh, the significance of this as symbolic of the fact that although the tribulation will be a time of terrible judgment, God's covenant relationship with Israel will remain intact. We see that with these, all these allusions to the Old Testament, the rainbow, the, the jasper and carnelian, God's relationship with Israel will remain intact. In other words, God's not finished with them yet. He's not finished with them yet. So now let's look at verse 4. This is more so around the throne. Around the throne, that's how it starts, verse 4. Around the throne, and here's our fourth mentioning of that word in the text, were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, um, they're clearly a representative group. In the Old Testament, there were 24 orders of priests, a part of the tribe of Levi, and those 24 would go and meet with God. This happened in the Old Testament. Um, so this is not an unfamiliar idea that's coming up in the text. Um, some people say this representative group could be that exactly, people representing the, the orders. Some say it's the 12 tribes of Israel represented and the 12 apostles. Uh, the text is not clearly laying out what it is, but we'll talk more about them later because it will come up here. The, the, the Revelation 4 is not saying who it is, but we'll see as we go along. But let's go further. Notice how it describes them. There's two ways they're described. How are they described? What does it say in the text? They're what? Clothed how? In white garments. And what else? Golden crowns on their heads. So why is that significant? You tell me. Why, why is the white garment significant? They're clean, right? So often you see in Scripture, clothing will represent someone's status, right? So if someone is dressed in rags, we might say, oh, that person's poor. Someone's dressed in a royal purple robe, they're LSU Tiger fans. No, I'm just kidding. They're, they're a king or queen, right? Um, and they might have a crown on their head. So how someone dresses might represent what they're like. We see very clearly, even in the Old Testament, think of Zechariah chapter 3. We won't turn there, but I'll just describe the passage to you. Zechariah 3, 1 to 5, Joshua the high priest is standing before God, but he's clothed in filthy clothes. And the devil's accusing him. And God says, take those clothes from him and give him pure vestments, pure clothes. And what does that represent? A transfer of his sin and a transfer to him of his righteousness. What do we see with these 24 elders? They don't have dirty clothes. They're on 24 thrones around the throne of God, and they're clothed in white garments, pure garments. It signifies their purity. But what is on their heads? Crowns, golden crowns. Now, we just sang a song, golden, cast their golden crowns around the glassy sea, right? We just sang that. Now, what are these crowns? There's two different kinds of crowns in the Bible. And some of our songs, we sing about them, right? Um, I can't remember which song. I always forget. Maybe it's a... Uh, you know what song? No, we just sang that. But the... But the uh, it says the word for it in the Greek. Diadems. You know what I'm talking about? Bring forth the royal diadem. Yeah. Crown him. Yeah, all hail the power. Right? So that we sing that word diadem. Right? Do you guys know that's a Greek word? That's not an English word. We just transliterate it into English. Diadem is a crown. Okay, so um, 
But it's a certain kind of crown. It's the crown of a ruler. If you don't know how to spell it, it's D-I-A-D-E-M. Okay? Now, this is really significant because that's not a diadem because it's another kind of crown. The diadem is a crown of a ruler. This is what's called a Stephanus. Anyone in here named Stephen? Hi, Stephen, Anna, Richardson. Um, right, so Stephen. Now, about this is S-T-E-P-H-E-N. But a Stephanus, okay, that is a crown that was given to someone who won a battle or who had won an athletic competition. So if you were an Olympian back in the, in the, in the day and you ran the, the track or you threw the javelin or I don't know if they had pole vaulting back then, but if you did something really cool like that, right, and you won, you would get this beautiful, like it'd be, it'd be like rose, not roses, but like, I forget the plant. I think it was, I don't know if it was olive branch. Um, anyway, you have this crown, laurel wreath around your head that you wore, and it signified your victory. But notice here, it's a golden crown. So what are the two things describing those 24 elders? Pure clothing and victorious crowns. They stood before God righteous, and they stood before God as winners, as victorious. That's describing these people. That's really interesting, isn't it? Well, that's going to be really important for upcoming verses, so don't forget that. Keep that in mind. Let's go down now to verse 5. Verse 5. Now we see from the throne. What happens here? From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So, this is actually really similar to another scene in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, when, the, when God comes down in a cloud, and he comes down on top of Mount Sinai. You can go read about this in Exodus 19. There's these thunder and lightning, and it's terrifying the people. The people are so scared. Actually, this is what happens. God has Moses bring all the people to the foot of the mountain, and then God speaks from the mountain to everyone in Israel, and they're terrified out of their minds. They're like, look, look, you talk to God. Who knew the between us and God? And we'll hear from you. They were so scared, they didn't want to hear God's voice ever again. It terrified them. So for us, I mean, I don't know if you're someone who's scared of thunderstorms. I'm not. I like to go outside during thunderstorms sometimes. But this would be a thunderstorm and flashes of lightning that each one of us would rightly fear. Flashes of lightning. Think about it. Just imagine with me. Use your imagination. You guys can see some pretty cool animated movies. I mean, some of y'all have already seen Spider-Man. I've seen it twice. Spider-Man. Pretty great animation, right? You guys have imaginations. Let's use them. Imagine heaven. Imagine the things we just talked about. Imagine the throne of God and all of a sudden flashes of thunder, peals of thunder, and rumblings. What else here? And before the throne, what do we see? Burning seven torches of fire. Now this represented, as the text even tells us, they're the seven spirits of God. Now if we refer back to Revelation 1, we understand what this means. Revelation 1, 3 or not three, I'm sorry, one, four. Uh, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. There's our word throne, right? Now, uh, you remember uh, verse five, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Remember, I talked about how this is the Trinity here, God the Father in that first part of the verse, and then the Spirit, and then the Son. The seven spirits have to do with the seven churches, Okay. Now, it shows a sign of completeness. Now, this doesn't mean the Spirit of God is broken up in seven parts. That, that would be heresy. Rather, it just means that he is fully present in each of these churches. Okay, that's what that means. So, in a sense here, 
what's happening is he's communicating that same thing that had just taken place with the seven churches, that before God, these torches of fire, the Spirit of God is there, the seven spirits representing the churches. And before the throne, verse 6, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. A sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Now, it's going to go on and describe these creatures. Let's do that real quick, and I want to come back and explain some of this. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, uh, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them, with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, I know you guys are reading out of your English Bibles, and I'm not saying this as a, um, as a means to brag or anything, but I, th- I just think this, the Greek here helps us a lot better to understand this idea of living creatures, because the, the same word for creatures is used later of the beast, and the beast is the bad guy, it's Satan in the text. And so I just think the, the Greek gets it in a better way. It says living ones, okay? It uses a different word. The word for creature in the Greek is uh, therion, but the Greek for li- living ones here is zo- zoon. And so it's just totally different. If you, know, if you have a friend named Zoe, Z-O-E, you know, that's where her name means life, essentially. That's where they, it comes from. Um, so living ones. I think it's better translated living ones, okay? These are the four living ones. What are these living ones? Well, they seem kind of oddly described, right? You see a, what do you see here? You see a lion, an ox, uh, one with the face of a man, and one like an eagle in flight. And then it goes and describes them. They, they all have six wings. This kind of seems like an odd creature. Eyes in front full of eyes in front and behind, so they see everything. And this is really um, a way that God is being glorified in describing his own attributes, but also his own servants. And so if we think about this, um, I wanted to read actually really briefly. There's two different interpretations that this is often taken, and maybe you've heard one of these before if you've studied this passage. But in in a similar way, the four creatures' depictions are respectively, as I already laid out, a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle which are considered different aspects of divine majesty. Think about it for a moment, okay? The lion is the king of what? Beasts. And it represents majesty and omnipotence. You know, if you've ever seen, I know I already made my Narnia reference, but I'm going back. Sorry, it's just real easy. But Aslan, when he comes on the scene, they always make him appear so majestic, right? Because that's the point of the character of a lion, right? It's, it's meant to be majestic and um, powerful. Uh, the calf or ox represents the most important of domestic animals. It signif- signifies patience and continuous labor. Man is the greatest of all God's creatures, especially in intelligence and rational power. And then the eagle is the greatest among birds and is symbolic of sovereignty and supremacy. Okay? So comparison has also been made of the four living creatures to the four gospels, which present Christ in four major aspects of his person. I could see how they would do that in the text. I don't think it's the right interpretation, but I'm not going to fault someone for thinking it. But essentially it is this, as the, as the lion, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is represented in Matthew, right? It focuses so much on Jesus's um, Jewish heritage in Matthew. Uh, as the calf or the ox uh, in the gospel of Mark, he is the servant of Jehovah, the faithful one of Mark. As man, he is the human Jesus presented in the gospel of Luke, which you seem to see a strong emphasis on Jesus's humanity in the gospel of Luke. And as the eagle, he is the divine son of God represented in the gospel of John. Okay, so we see that really clearly um, in these texts, and I think that's one interpretation, and it, it, I see how it makes sense. Uh, I don't hold to that, but I think it, it's helpful to know those kind of things and see how people view this, okay? 
So now let's go to the very end of our text, okay? Um, they had just got done saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right there in the end of verse 8, who was and is and is to come. So they recognize God's holiness or worshiping him. Then verse 9 through 11, look at what the text says. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, notice how it describes God, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When we think about this passage, it's really powerful because what happens is you see these living creatures and they, they worship God. And then you see following that, these 24 elders copy them. They, they imitate them and they also worship God. The creatures give glory and honor and thanks. What is glory? Glory is a sense of weightiness, a sense of fame, right? So if someone that we all said, hey, it's a really well-known person walked into the room, we might all pause and be like, oh, wow, that's so-and-so. You know, like we should all say, hey, right? Like that's Drew Brees or that's, you know, someone else. And we might all just be like, wow, that's amazing. Joe Burrow. Maybe we all like Joe Burrow a lot more right now. I don't know. Um, but you, you'd see that person walk in and that would capture your attention. They would hold a certain weight versus like a complete stranger. You'd be like, oh, who's that guy? You know? So in the same way, God holds a certain weight, right? He is the most glorious of all beings. And so they get it. Now, this might be an odd thing to think about. Maybe you've never thought of this. The living creatures give God glory. Now, do you think God needs them to give glory to him? No. They're not supplying anything that God is lacking. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything at all. But they're doing what they should rightly do as God's creatures. They're saying, you made me. We're the living ones you've made. I'm giving you glory. I'm responding to you as you've responded to me. You responded to me graciously. So I'm giving thanks. I'm honoring you. I'm, I'm, I'm praising you. And notice it's to the one who's seated on the throne. And it's the one who lives forever and ever. It's describing this eternal, powerful, glorious God. And these elders, how do they respond? When someone falls down, this is not an accident. They didn't trip, okay? When they're falling down, they're so overwhelmed by what they see, they can't stand any longer. They get on their knees. They're amazed at what they see. They're in awe of what they see. And notice how they respond to this one seated on the throne. And they worship him who lives, and it emphasizes it again. Notice when the Bible repeats itself, pay attention. He lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. This is really interesting, isn't it? This imagery of casting the crowns. Wait a second. God gave them the clean robes. God gave them the golden crowns to wear. And the golden crowns represented their victory. You know, you think about it. An Olympian, right, they get that gold medal, right? And they go maybe, they hang out on a plaque or hang out in their house. But imagine if that Olympian just gives that gold medal away. He just gives it away. You might think, wow, that's a really honorable thing to do, right? If Michael Phelps came in here and just handed out all of his gold medals there, he's got so many of them, right? We'd be like, wow, that's amazing that Michael Phelps did that. He gave those away. That's a really kind thing to do. Well, here's the thing. Did we deserve that? No, we didn't deserve it, right? Think about this. This might be an even better illustration. You guys have maybe watched a few NFL games in your day, right? And maybe a player gets a touchdown. And instead of being like some players who just, like, just, you know, chuck it right into the stands, this player might run wherever he's at, even if it's like the other corner of the field, and his mom's over there or his dad's over there. 
and he runs over and he hands the ball right to them. And what's he saying when he hands them the ball? In a way, he's, he's honoring them. He's respecting them. Maybe mom and dad drove, drove that young man to practice every week and, it, and drove him to tournaments and all these kind of things. And, and we're just, they gave their whole life to get this kid to where he is in the NFL today. And that's a way that he gives back. Yeah, he was, he's the one who did the work to get the touchdown, but he gives it to them as a way of honoring them. In the same way, yes, these people, God sustained them. They are faithful to the end. He gave them a crown, but they're giving it back. They're saying, you know who the victory really belongs to? It belongs to Christ. It belongs to you, Jesus. So that's an amazing way to respond. And that's, a, that's something that should catch our attention. And notice, this is what they're saying. You're worthy. God, you're worthy. In other words, you're valuable. You're so valuable. You're so great. Only you deserve this. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive this, to glory, honor, and power. Why? Now, it tells the whole reason why. And guys, you need to grasp this. If you don't grasp anything else I say, grasp their reason for saying this, because God's a creator. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's a powerful picture. We see in this text that God alone is worthy of worship. God alone is worthy of worship. Now, why is God the only one worthy of worship? Because he's creator. That's what the text is saying. No one else deserves this. You might actually go to the very end of the uh, book of Revelation, the very end, and go to Revelation 22, verse 8. This is very interesting. Notice what John does. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am your fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. He command, he gives, the angel gives them a command, worship God. He's the only one who deserves it. He's the only one who's worthy. Yes, these living ones, they're powerful, majestic creatures, but even they recognize that's not the right thing to do. You worship God alone. God's the creator. He's the only one who deserves worship. No angel, no human deserves worship. Nobody. Except for God. Why? For two reasons. Because of who he is and what he has done. We see that in the text. For you created all things. That's what he did, right? But what does that reveal about who he is? He's creator. Who he is and what he's done is the clear reason why he is worthy of all honor. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5 through 11. I just want to walk through this passage, and the reason why is because I think it really helps paint a picture for us about why God is so worthy of worship. Another, another beautiful picture. Now, the context of this is 1 through 4, Paul's giving commands to this church, and then he tells them to imitate Christ. Notice what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see why? You see why Jesus did what he did? Is to bring glory to God. And everyone, no matter if you're in heaven or on earth or in hell, everyone will give glory to God. Everyone will confess with their mouth. Everyone will bow the knee. And so as we think about this text, as we think about Christ being worthy of worship and worthy of honor, in conclusion, this is what I think you guys can take away today. Look to Christ on the throne, resting in his righteous victory. Look to Christ on the throne, resting in his righteous victory. Notice it's not just a random victory. It's a righteous victory. He defeated death. He defeated our sin. It's a good victory. So, in application, you know, this text doesn't have a, some spe- any really specific commands, like, hey, don't do that anymore, or do this now. So how do we draw application? We've got to ask ourselves this question. If this text is about worship, and these 24 elders are worshiping, and these angels are worshiping, I think the best question I can ask any of you students, listen here, look here, who or what do you worship? Who or what do you worship? You worship yourself? Your desires, your base desires and passions, you just want to fulfill what you want? Do you worship your phone? You spend so much time on it, social media or games or texting your friends, whatever. What is, what's your focus? Is it your sports or your academics or your clubs? you do after school, what's your focus? What do you give so much of yourself to? Hey, is it your perception of your self-righteousness? You thinking, oh, I do all this good stuff. I'm so great. Ooh, that's not good. If your eyes are on you, that's the problem. Notice the 24 elders didn't bow down and just think about themselves. They bowed down and looked to Christ. They all faced Christ. When you have your eyes on you, that's dangerous. When you have your eyes on something else besides God, that's always dangerous. It's dangerous for you. Do you, do you worship your aspirations? Like, what's ahead? Like, oh, I want to be this kind of person. I want to do this kind of thing. Do you worship your comfort? Like, you can't handle pain. You only want pleasure. You're never going to do anything that's hard. What do you worship? Ask yourself that question. Because, listen, whatever you worship that's not God, we call that an idol. In other words, it's something that's created a created thing that we're saying, you know what, that's more worthy of my attention. It's more worthy of my affection than Jesus. What is it that you worship? Who is it that you worship? If you're an unbeliever today, you don't worship God. You worship yourself or something created. And I would want to urge you today, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, to to not sit idly by and not think about the weight of what's before you. Your life is a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. You know, the, recently I saw this, um, I don't know how it popped up in, online, I saw it, but it was this, um, this chart of your life in weeks. Has anyone ever seen something like that? And the, the chart is all the way to your 90, 90 years old, and it has 52 squares, and you, you, you fill in every square, so it's 52 across for every year. And I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to print that out, and I'm going to fill in every square. I got to 11 years and my hands started hurting because I'm like, man, I haven't filled out Scantron sheets in public school in a really long time. So I just I took a little break. 
But I thought I got to 11 years. I'm going to be 33 this, this April. I, and I filled out a third of my life in weeks. And I thought, wow, that's filling up a lot of the page. I still got to get down to here. And I'm sitting here thinking, now, I'm, I mean, I'll live to 90, but think about it for a moment. Your life is going by week by week, week by week, routine after routine, and it only gets faster. It only gets faster. It only gets crazier. And how are you spending your time? And as you think about it, you're like, oh, I'm young. I have so much time ahead of me. You may not have so much time ahead of you. I don't have to repeat all the stories of my friends who died in high school. I say there's enough probably. But you could lose your life in middle school or in high school or in college. I don't say any of that to scare you guys. I'm not trying to manipulate your emotions. That'd be deceptive. I'm just trying to speak the truth. It's reality. People die every day. Every day. You don't know when your time is up. I don't know when my time is up. But we should be like David and say, God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Do you live wisely? And living wisely always begins with what? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Do you fear the Lord? Do you worship Him first? Keep that in mind. If you're a believer today, we know that sometimes so many things in the world could tempt us from fixing our eyes on something else, or distracting us. And my hope to, for you is that your hope would be set on Christ and His coming, and that you would look to Him first. And that you would let this race that you're running in the gospel to Christ. To know, yes, He suffered, I do. Investing is temporary. It's not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Don't waste your life. Don't miss out on what God has for you. And seek to know Him, His Word his ways. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time in your word. We pray that we would continue to be shaped by what your word says, that we look to you on your throne, and we would be transformed by the gospel. We love you, and we thank you for this time together. We pray that we would worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.